Well, good morning to all of you. I greet you in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope. It's great to be here, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share the Lord with you this morning. I always like to begin with a smile, and so I want to share with you one of uh, my favorite Bible-related stories. It has to do with a pastor who was well-known for having a verse for everything. And he was very proud of the fact. So he had a verse for everything. And one of the people in his congregation, a nice lady he had visited several times in the hospital, he got the word that she had come home from the hospital, so he went to visit her. He went over and he knocked on the front door and he heard a door open, he heard a door close, he heard the pitter-patter of feet, but no one came to the door. He knocked again and again, he heard somebody wandering around inside, but nobody came to the door. So finally he gave up and left. He walked out to his car, and as he was about to get in the car, he thought, Now, wait a minute. I, I've got a reputation I've got to keep up here. I've got a verse for everything. Now, what's a verse for this? And so he thought for a moment, and one came to his mind. So he pulled out his calling card, and he wrote on the back of the calling card, Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And he thought to himself, I really do have a verse for everything. So he left. Three days later, he gets an envelope in the mail, and he looks, and it's from this lady. And he opens it up, and the only thing in the envelope, the only thing, was his calling cord. He turned the calling cord over, and on the back there was his uh, verse that he had written to her. But she had written a verse underneath it, Genesis 3, verse 10, which reads, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I ran and hid myself. Well, I guess there really is a verse for everything. I, I want to begin this morning by taking a look at a key verse, and that is in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 4. And in the New American Standard Version, it reads like this, Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and I thank you for the way you have already blessed us this morning in worship, blessed us in fellowship, and now I pray for you to bless us as we look into your word. Guide my thoughts and guide my words, and through me this morning, may you touch hearts for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. I represent a ministry called Lamb and Lion Ministries, and... Um, it is a Bible prophecy ministry. From the very beginning until this day, we've had one goal and one goal only, and that is to, to proclaim the soon coming of Jesus to as many people as we can as quickly as we can. And we do that in a great variety of ways. And the message is like a two-edged sword. For the believer, the message is commit your life to holiness, commit your life to evangelism. And to the unbeliever, the message is flee from the wrath that is to come by fleeing into the loving arms of Jesus right now. We founded the ministry in 1980, and even though our focus was Bible prophecy and still is, and although I've written many books on Bible prophecy, the very first book I ever wrote had nothing to do with Bible prophecy. It had to do with faith. The title of the book was Trusting God, Learning to Live by Faith. And the reason that was my very first book written in 1987 is because the first seven years of the ministry... As I was teaching Bible prophecy, God was teaching me a whole lot of lessons about myself and about Him. And He was teaching me about how to live by faith. I was uh, 
born into a Christian family. I was raised in the church. And when I say that, I really mean it. I was thinking about that on the way here this morning. And what a radically different world we live in today than the one I was raised in. I was raised in the church. I was there every time the door opened. We, we were there on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, vacation Bible school, gospel meeting after gospel meeting. I mean, I was, I was just a church kid. We didn't have the diversions that we have today. We had, we had no television. Yes, I was before television. We had, had no television. Everything was closed on Sunday. Everything. There was nothing open. There were no sports events on Sundays. We could focus on the Lord. We could focus on His Word. We could focus on church. How that's changed. So I grew up in the church. And during that time, I learned a lot of things about the Lord, but I never did come to really know the Lord. There's a big difference in knowing about somebody and really knowing them. By the time I was 12 years old, I was a walking encyclopedia of the Bible. I could quote the books. I could quote verses, all kinds of things. But I was also, as I grew up, became a teacher, and I even became a preacher, even though I was not full-time. I was in other careers, but I was teaching all the time and preaching all the time. And I taught a lot about faith, and I preached a lot about faith, but you know what I found out? It is a big difference to talk about it and do it. And in 1980, when I stepped out in faith, I discovered I didn't know the first thing about living by faith. And I found out it was a very scary thing. And over the years, I found out it was the most wonderful thing I ever did in my life as I learned more about God and how it, what it means to walk by faith. And I want to share some of those lessons with you this morning. But first of all, let me just give you a little background about myself. I grew up in Waco, Texas. And I went to the University of Texas in Austin. I entered there in 1956. I graduated in 59 in government and history. I'd gone through in three years' time, winter and summer, year-round, and I was burned out. I was just fed up with school. And so instead of going on to law school or graduate school, I didn't know which one I wanted to go to, I decided that I was just going to rest for a year. And so I laid out for a year thinking I was going to rest. I really did rest, but I had a whole different type of thing to do. I worked for my dad in his construction company, and then within weeks after I graduated from the university through a very bizarre series of circumstances, I became the pastor of a little country church in Grosbeck, Texas. It was a weekend deal for me, and it was a baptism of fire. There were only two members, of the two, two families in the church. One family sat on this side, one family sat on that side. They hated each other with a passion and would not speak to each other. It was really a wonderful experience. Nobody knew how to do anything. So I had to lead the prayers. I had to lead the singing. I preached. I did the, the, the youth ministry. I served the communion. I, I did everything. My wife, well, she wasn't my wife at that time. It was my girlfriend. And would go with me every Sunday and help me do all those things. So it was quite an interesting experience. And you know what? I knew the moment that God worked through those bizarre circumstances to put me in that position, I knew that he had called me into the ministry. But unlike Isaiah who said, Here am I, Lord, send me. I said, Here am I, Lord, send anybody in the world but me. I am not interested. And I began to run from the Lord. I had big ideas. I was going to become a go to law school and I was going to become a, a, a big politician and, and I was going to be a politician for the Lord. <laughs> That's the way I justified it. I was just running from the Lord as hard as I could run. And I really did intend to go to law school, but that year something happened. I got a letter in the mail and a professor of mine had nominated me for a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship and I didn't know what that was. And I went to Austin, Texas. I was interviewed. I was given the fellowship and it entitled me to go to any school in the United States free of charge. 
So I went up to Boston to Harvard University and I, I, I earned some degrees there and my doctorate in international law and politics and I began a career in academics and I taught for 20 years at the university level teaching international law and politics all the time running from the Lord. And you know what? I found out something very interesting. You can accomplish a lot in life. You can accomplish all kinds of accolades and awards and all that sort of thing. But if you're not in the center of God's will, you will be miserable. It doesn't matter what you achieve. No matter how much money you earn, how many awards you get, if you're not in the center of God's will, you're going to be miserable. And I was miserable. I was just absolutely miserable. So, what happened was that I ended up with two fathers on my back. My earthly father was a self-made Millionaire, a man who just had so many businesses he could hardly keep up with them and everything he touched turned to gold. It was just unbelievable. He had never gone to college. He was a product of the Depression. He was determined that when the next Depression occurred, he was going to have plenty of money in the bank and he'd make it okay. And he wouldn't suffer like he did in the 1930s. And he was on my back. He had no respect whatsoever for what I was doing. He said, you people in the academic world, you live in the clouds. You're not in the real world. You need to come out here and start a business, son. You need to, you need to meet a payroll. And he was always preaching that to me. You need to get out of that academic world and do something worthwhile. And I had my heavenly father on my back <laughs> calling me into the ministry. Finally, I got so miserable after 20 years that one day I decided, that I was going to take a very radical step and give up my academic career and I was going to do something that would get both fathers off my back at the same time. I thought it was pure genius what I came up with. I decided what I would do is I would sell everything I had and take that money and I would open up a Christian store here in the Dallas area. In fact, it was downtown Dallas. And it would have everything. It would have books and music. It would have choir robes and communion supplies and everything. It was going to be the largest uh, Christian store in Dallas. I called it Renewal House. And that way I would get my earthly father off my back because I would be in business. And I would get my heavenly father off my back because I was going to meet him halfway. I had a few things to learn. <laughs> so, I sold everything. I invested in this business. I spent probably a year getting ready to open the business and finally got it open. I operated it for about a year and a half and although it grew every month that I operated it, nonetheless it didn't grow fast enough and at the end of a year and a half I had no money left. I went down to the bank to borrow some more money and when I walked in I'll never forget the surprise. I looked around and I did not recognize a single face in the bank. The bank had been sold and they had cleaned house and all new people were there and I didn't know any of them. And I went to the person they said was my loan officer and I told him I needed some more money. And he said, son, you ain't getting any more money. That's it. I said, well, I'm going to go broke. I, I mean, I'll, I'll lose my business. He said, well, you just have to lose it because you're not getting any more money. I said, how much do I owe you? He said, you owe me $100,000. I couldn't even imagine $100,000. Last night I got on the computer and I went to that place on the computer that's called the inflation index where it calculates what money in a certain year is worth today. That was 1977 or 78. And $100,000 then is $350,000 today. That's what I owed the bank. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I, I went into depression. I threw a pity party. I felt sorry for myself. I, I, I just I couldn't think. I was so depressed. I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, I didn't know how to turn to the Lord. You see, here's the interesting thing. Even though I had grown up in the church and even though I had been immersed in the Bible, again, I knew all about that, but I didn't know God. You know, it's, it's a difference in knowing 
about somebody and, and, and knowing them. I know about Billy Graham. I've read every book he's written. I have read biographies of him. But I do not know Billy Graham. I have never sat down. I've never looked into his eyes. I've never talked to him. I've never asked him what kind of food he likes and what kind of food he doesn't like. I don't know him. I knew about God, but I didn't know God. I didn't know how to reach out to God. And furthermore, I didn't believe that if I did, God would do anything anyway. You've got to understand the kind of church I grew up in. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. But I was desperate. I was just desperate, reaching around, trying to, you know, please God, you know, do something. And I just didn't know what to do. And in the midst of all this desperation, I finally got to the point where I became suicidal. And I was constantly thinking of, 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 of suicide. And, and it was right in the middle of all that that suddenly a voice spoke to me in my spirit. And today I know it was the Holy Spirit because you see when I was 12 years old I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And the Holy Spirit had moved in and taken up residence. But He wasn't president. He wasn't in charge of my life. But He spoke to me. And the message was very simple. Over and over and over. Try God. Try God. Try God. I kept wondering what that meant. And I finally decided, well, I, I, I think I, I'll do this. So I called about five members of my congregation. And I said to them, why don't you come over to my house? These were five men. And they came over and, and we sat down around the kitchen table and I told them how desperate I was and I said, I, I need a miracle. I need a miracle. And I said, would you pray for me? And we started around the table and they started praying one by one. I never heard such lifeless prayers in all my life. They were not even reaching the ceiling. Now, Lord, we're concerned about David and you know, if you can do anything for him, well, we would appreciate if you would do something. And I finally, I just took my fist and banged on the table and I said, stop it. I said, these, these prayers are absolutely awful. I said, why don't you pray with some faith? And they said, okay, well, we'll just pretend we've got faith and we'll, we'll just keep on going. It was awful. But the very next morning, God answered that prayer. The very next morning. And you would guess for a thousand years, and you would never be able to guess how God answered that prayer. Because He did it in such a very, very strange manner. Let me just pause here for a moment before I tell you how He answered the prayer and give you a little bit more background about the church I grew up in. The church I grew up in was a church that was always into the Bible, mainly the New Testament. We never talked about the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we never talked about the Holy Spirit. That was a taboo topic. Our leaders felt that if you talked about the Holy Spirit, somebody would get carried away and start babbling or do something weird, and so we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. And I had difficulty with the Holy Spirit. Because the only version of the Bible I had was a King James Version. And it referred to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost. And I couldn't figure that out because I was a Boy Scout. We'd go out on Boy Scout campouts and we'd sit around the uh, campfire and try to scare each other to death by telling ghost stories. And, I, and, and ghosts were always bad. They were evil. How could the Holy Ghost be good? I couldn't figure that out. I was 12 years old at the time. I, you know, it was very difficult for me to figure these things out. And then one, one, one Saturday morning, I got on the bus in Waco, Texas. It cost me a nickel. Rode the bus downtown Waco. Went to the Strand Theater. It cost me nine cents. I went in and they showed a double feature. Two cowboy movies. And in the middle, they always showed a cartoon. And one of those things where the lady was always left on the railroad track. You had to come back next week to find out. You know, one of these serials. 
Well, I watched the cowboy movie, I watched the serial, and then guess what the, movie, the, the, the cartoon was? Casper the Friendly Ghost. Suddenly, all my theology came together. The Holy Ghost is like Casper the Friendly Ghost. He's always there to pick you up and dust you off and help you and so forth. And I just didn't have any problem with the Holy Ghost until I was 16. And at 16, we had a rite of passage in our church. It was called Young Men's Bible Training Class. All 16-year-olds required to go, where you learned how to pray, learned how to pass communion, learned how to uh, uh, study the Bible and all that sort of thing, and learned the fundamental doctrines of the church. And the night we got to the Holy Ghost, the man who was teaching said, Does anybody here know, could explain to me the Holy Ghost? And I raised my hand and said, Yes, sir, he is like Casper the Friendly Ghost. And brother, whoo! He cut me off at the knees. I mean, it was that was the silliest thing you'd ever heard of. It was absolute nonsense. He said, Son, let me tell you what the Holy Ghost is. The Holy Ghost is the Bible. And the more Bible you learn, the more Holy Ghost you get. But there's no such thing as a person called the Holy Spirit. So I had the Holy Spirit residing in me, but I didn't know He was there, and I didn't know much about it. But that's the kind of environment that I grew up in. Let me tell you something else about our environment. Our church believed in cessationism. Cessationism. That's the idea that when the last apostle died, all the supernatural ended. That's what we were taught. When the last apostle died, all the supernatural ended. The gifts of the Spirit ended. The works of the Holy Spirit ended. The uh, God went into retirement. Uh, that um, there were no such thing as miracles anymore. That all of that ended in the first century. And the idea of praying for somebody's healing was just considered bizarre. I mean, if, <laughs> if, if our preacher ever prayed for somebody uh, uh, to, to be healed, he would say, Lord, in the name of Jesus, would you please help the doctors remember what they learned in medical school and help them to write the right prescriptions and so forth. But if he had said, Lord, we're concerned about sister so-and-so, in the name of Jesus, would you please heal her? We would have had five coronaries in the audience right there because he mentioned the word heal. Because we didn't believe in healing. All that ended in the first century. We were also a very, very legalistic church. Very legalistic. I mean, the essence of, of, of Christianity was the do's and the don'ts. We had the list of do's, the list of don'ts, and, and the things that you had to memorize and all that. And, and there was never any talk about a personal relationship with the Lord. And so, as we finished that prayer meeting that night, that's where I was. I had asked for a miracle when I didn't believe in miracles. When these men around praying didn't believe in miracles. But I asked for one. And it came the next morning. The very next morning. I went in that morning. And I walked up to the sales desk at the front. And a lot of plate glass windows in front of me. Picked up the phone. And I started calling around trying to sell the things in the store. The, the You know, to sell the merchandise. Sell the uh, uh, the uh, furniture and so forth. And, and let me tell you. When you're, when you're in that situation, people smell blood. And they offer you one-tenth of what you paid for it. And it was just getting worse and worse. And right in the middle of that, there was a homosexual bar across the street from our, from our store. And right in the middle of talking on that... The owner of that bar drove up. I'd never seen him in the daytime, only at night. He was a night guy. But he drove up that morning in his Jaguar. And he got out in his $1,000 suit and he lit up a big cigar and he just stood there and puffed on it. And it was like Satan was saying, look at my guy. He's got a Jaguar. He's got a nice suit. He's got everything in the world of successful business. And you follow the Lord and you've got you to fail. I was so mad. I was getting madder and madder and madder. I was mad at God. I was shaking my fist at God. And just about then, I heard a knock on the door. And I looked over and there was 
an oriental couple standing there. And we had a sign on the door that said closed. And I pointed to the sign, turned my back, and he kept knocking it. It's just very aggravating. So finally I put the phone down, I went over, and I opened the door just about that much, and I said, can't you read? We're closed. And he said, oh, sir, I, I'm interested in buying your fixtures. I said, oh, okay, well, okay. So I brought them in. I closed the door and he walked around speaking to her in a foreign language and I kept talking on the phone. Finally he came back and, and in the oriental style, very very kind, he started bowing to me and he's saying, Sir, I, I, I appreciate you letting me see your store. I, I really thank you and honor you, but you don't have anything I'm interested in. So I went over and opened the door and the lady went out and he got halfway out the door and he stopped. And he looked back at me and he said, You're hurting in the spirit, aren't you? Whew, you talk about getting mad. Now, I was really getting mad. I mean, this foreigner coming over here is talking to this red-blooded Texan, and he's telling me something like this. That's so, so, so intimate and personal. I thought, what, what, who does he think he is? Where is he coming from? And I said, well, yes, I am, but what's, what's it to you, Buster? He said, well, I'm a Christian. I assume you're a Christian if you own this store. Uh, could I talk with you about it? Could I pray with you? Well, I didn't want him praying for me. You know how that is when somebody says, can I pray for you? You don't want to pray for you, but you don't want to say that. <laughs> I said, well, okay. And he said something to the lady and she left. And I locked the door and we went back to my office. And when we went in, I sat down on the couch and I mentioned for him to sit in a chair, but he didn't do it. He came over, sat down on the couch and put his arm around me. <laughs> Patting me on the shoulder. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? You know, I... And he says, I want to tell you a story. He said, when I was a kid, my father was very wealthy. We lived in a big mansion. We had everything the world could offer. And one day he came home with terror in his eyes. And he started yelling at the top of his voice, calling everybody to come down to the living room. And said, we had a large family. We had over 13 in our family. Because we had grandmothers and grandfathers living in our family. It was a big unified family. And everybody came down. He said, sit in a circle in the living room. We said, why? He said, just do it. And we sat down. He said, now I am going to get some pillow slips and give each one of you a pillow slip. And I'm going to run through the house and gather food. And I'm going to gather all the valuables I can. I'm going to put them in the middle. When I do, take them. Put them in the sacks. When they're full, tie them at the top. And they said, Why? The communists are coming. And he said, they're going to murder us because we're wealthy and because we're Christians. And he said, my father ran all through the house and put things in the middle. And we, we put them in the bags and we tied them. And then we fled into the jungle. And he said, David, we didn't know how to live in the jungle. He said, we were out there for months wandering in the jungle. And we prayed every day, God save us, God help us, show us what to drink, show us what to eat. See, we didn't know how, we weren't survivalists. Help us to walk in the right direction. And he said, many weeks later, we made it all the way from Hanoi to Saigon. And we started our lives over. And then he said, many, many years later, I came home one day with terror in my eyes. Because I was an interpreter at the American Embassy. And they had called me in and told me that they were going to flee from that nation that I could go but none of my family and I told them I would not leave my family so I did the same thing my father did I told the family to get in a circle and for the second time I ran through the house I got all the things I threw them in the middle we tied off the sacks and we fled into the jungle not knowing how to live in the jungle even 
said we wandered for days and days and finally through the Mekon Delta we got to a coastline and there was a refugee ship God had saved us for the second time we got on the refugee ship and he said they pulled out of the South China Sea and the ship started sinking there were so many people on thousands and thousands and they started fighting each other and pushing each other overboard and said we just got over to a quiet place that we could find and we got on our knees and prayed God save us God help us and he said God did it he said a an American destroyer pulled up and offloaded us. And God had saved us for a third time. And that destroyer took us to the Philippines and said they put us in a like a concentration camp in the Philippines and we were there for over two years and every day we prayed, God help us, God save us, God deliver us from this. And one day the news came that a Bible church in Dallas, Texas had adopted our family. And so here we are now in the United States of America starting our lives all over again. He hugged me and I hugged him and he left and everything had changed and yet nothing had changed I still owed a bank $100,000 I still had a failed business but everything had changed because that man through his testimony got my eyes off myself and got them on God and I realized that I didn't have any problems, any compared to what he had had over and over and over. And yet God had delivered him from each one of those as he and his family had prayed so, so earnestly. And so I began to pray to God and I began to focus upon God and not on myself. The pity party was over. There were some hard years ahead because what I did was to negotiate a settlement with the bank I still owed them after I sold everything off. I still owed them over $60,000. And uh, I negotiated a settlement. I had to pay them $1,000 a month for seven years. We had to cut our lifestyle more than in half. We moved into a tiny duplex. We had an old broken down car that we were driving. We lived off my wife's income as a first grade teacher while I worked to pay off that debt. And that was even good because the Lord delivered us from the American lifestyle of, of materialism of no matter how much you have, you've got to have more. No matter how many cars, you've got to have more. No matter how big a house, you've got to have a bigger one. And we learned that we could live very simply and be very, very happy. It wasn't easy. But we did it. In the meantime, I had to find a new job. And I was called one day and offered the job of vice president of a university in Oklahoma to be their director of finance and fundraising. I had a lot of misgivings about this particular job because that school was a Christian school that was affiliated with a very, very liberal denomination. And I was a conservative. I confronted the president of the school with this. And he said, oh, David, you don't understand. He said, we are the most conservative school in this entire denomination. But I found out later on that... Uh, Views of liberal and conservative depends on where you are on the spectrum. <laughs> it may have been the most conservative school, but for me it was a wild, wild liberal school once I got there. The very first thing I did, the first day I was there, I went over to, they had a seminary. I went over to the seminary and I met with the seminary president. And I said, you know, I'm new and I'm getting acquainted with everybody. Tell me, I have a question for you. He said, what's that? I said, what is the goal of the first year of seminary here? And without hesitation, without any pause, he said, the goal of the first year of cemetery, cemetery, of seminary, is to erase 
from the students' minds all the garbage they've learned at church. I knew I was in the wrong place. I had told my wife to stay behind in Dallas and our kids. I said, I'm going to go up there for six months and just kind of test the waters. <laughs> I was so glad I'd left them behind. But I tell you, you talk about miserable. There I was, stuck there for, I, I figured I had to stay at least six months. I was in a tiny little apartment. My wife and family down in, in Dallas, I was lonely. It was a wilderness experience, but God had orchestrated that. He wanted me to have a wilderness experience because He wanted me to get focused on Him and stay focused on Him. And I began to pray as I have never prayed before. Over and over, God, what do you want me to do? Tell me, I am tired of running from you. I want to get in the center of your will. And one day as I was praying, the Lord spoke to me again. I just got this strong message. The message was very, very precise. Resign your job. Step out in faith. Preach, Jesus is coming soon. Preach, flee from the wrath that is to come. I heard it over and over again. Resign your job. Step out in faith. Preach the soon coming of Jesus. Preach, flee from the wrath that is to come. And I wrestled with that and wrestled with it and wrestled. It was good news because ever since the Six Day War in 1967, I had been focused on the studying of Bible prophecy and it had become the passion of my life. But the bad news was, do it by faith. I was a guy that always wanted that paycheck, uh, knew it was coming. And living by faith doesn't mean there's a paycheck coming. <laughs> I, I, I just, uh, it was good news and bad news. And while I was wrestling with that, one day I went out to the mailbox. Our mail came very early at that apartment. We were the first stop on his mail delivery. And I always came before I went to work. I went out and I opened the mailbox and there was a package from a friend of mine in Houston. I opened the package and in it was a tape. I thought, well, I'll listen to this. He, he said, I was listening to this tape and God spoke to me and said, send it to you. So I went in, I put it in the cassette player, and it was a tape, a part of a ten-tape series about how to, uh, how to walk with God and make decisions. And this one was particularly on decision-making. And it said in that tape, it said, if you're ever wrestling with a major decision in your life, try the Old Testament principle of seeking the confirmation of two or more witnesses. And I thought, wow, that's a good idea. So I thought, who is the most godly person I know? And I thought, well, it's Bob Yarbrough, a man I know in Dallas, Texas, who's gone on to be with the Lord now. And I thought, I'll call him. So I called Bob, and I told Bob, I said, Bob, I believe God's calling me in the ministry, to a full-time ministry in Bible prophecy. And I explained it all to him. I said, I, I, I'm seeking the confirmation of two or more witnesses. Would you call me, uh, uh, pray about this, and call me back? And he said, okay. And two days passed, and boy, was I were wringing my hands. And then the phone rang, and it was Bob. And Bob said, are you sitting down? I said, no. He said, you better sit down, because you don't believe what's happened. He said, David, the next day after you talked to me, I went to a prayer breakfast and I shared with those men what you had told me. And he said, you know what happened? He said it was spontaneous. I didn't even ask for any money. It was just spontaneous. They began to hand me pieces of paper. And on the paper were pledges for a year. And he said, the pledges added up to $800 a month for a year. I didn't even know these people. He said, man, it's no doubt God wants you to do this. When are you going to do it? I said, well, I, 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 I'm running an experiment. It scared me to death. It just scared me literally to death. So then I sat down and I thought, well, who will be the second witness? And I, you know, I went through all these names. Looking back on it now, I know I was searching for somebody who's going to say no. <laughs> I was, and I searched and I searched and I searched. And finally I thought of Bernice Gammon who lived over in South Dallas. Oh man, what a character. Gold-plated. She was about 75 years old. She drove me nuts. We'd been friends for many years. I don't even remember how we met. But, but she would, she would find out 
almost supernaturally, every place I was going to preach or teach, she would find out. She would get an audio that she'd send me a five-page typewritten letter about all the things that I did wrong in the sermon. You shouldn't have used this verse. You misused that verse. You should have given this. On and on and on. She was a burr under my saddle. And she was very gruff. Very gruff. You would call her and she'd say, Mom! And I never knew what she said. And I, I, finally one day I said, Bernice, what do you say when you answer the phone? She said, I'll answer the phone by saying, Rejoice the Lord always. And you're supposed to say, and again I say rejoice. And you never say it. You make me mad. <laughs> she would never say goodbye. She'd just hang up. When she got tired of talking, she'd just hang up. That's it. Oh. So I thought, Bernice is the one. So I called Bernice, and sure enough, she said something. And I said, and again I say rejoice. And she said, great. <laughs> and then I told her what I wanted, and she said, okay, I'll call you back when I get a chance. And she hung up, and that was it. No goodbyes or anything. I thought, well, that's the end of that. Two days later, she called and said, you better be sitting down. She said, David, about ten minutes after you called, I opened a letter. And in the letter was a check for $3,000 from, from an estate that I didn't even know I was a beneficiary of. And if you'll do this, if you'll step out in faith, I'll give you 1000 of my $3,000 inheritance. And this lady lived in a little shack over in South Dallas. And she said, I'll tell you what else I'll do. She said, if you'll take this step, I will give you my automobile because I know you're going to need one. Well, I was just stunned. Then she started laughing. I didn't even know Bernice could laugh. She was laughing. I said, what's so funny? She said, well, don't get too excited about the car. She said, it's a holy car. I said, what does that mean? She said, it's been prayed over on the side of the road many, many times. <laughs> and it was. It was an old junker. She said, when are you going to do this? I'm excited. When are you? I said, well, I'm running an experiment. I'll let you know. I shared this with an Episcopalian priest friend of mine one time, and he said, I know what you did next. I said, how do you know? He said, I've been there. I said, okay, wise guy, what I do next? He said, you asked for a third witness. I said, well, I'm ashamed to say so, but I did. I said, I scared death. So I prayed, Lord, if you just send a third one, I'll do this. And I learned something about God. When you're seeking Him, He can speak to you through His Word, which is the way He usually speaks, or He can speak to you through a friend. He can speak to you through a child. He can speak to you through a worship song. He can speak to you in many, many different ways, so you better be listening. The next morning, very next morning, I walked out, opened the mailbox, and there was the latest issue of Christianity Today. And on the cover was a man I admired all my life, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the greatest expository preacher of the 20th century. Had a church in London, England. And I thought, well, I wonder what this is all about. So I went back in, opened it up. It was an interview of him on his 80th birthday. They said, where did you go to school? He said, I went to medical school. They said, did you become a medical doctor? He said, yes. They said, how did you get in the ministry? God called me. I put a sign on my door. I said, practice closed, gone to save men's souls. He said, well, what seminary did you go to? He said, I never went to seminary. Well, what did you do? He said, I just stood up. I read a verse, commented, read a verse, commented, read a verse, commented. So that's all I've ever done. This man wrote one of the most profound commentaries in the book of Romans that's ever been written. I went on through the interview and got down to the very end of the interview and he said, have you learned anything new in the last five years? Since you retired as pastor. He said, oh yes. For the last five years I've concentrated on Bible prophecy and I'm absolutely convinced we're living in the season of the Lord's return. Last question. If you were a new minister just starting out today, what would be your, what would be your message? And he said, my message would be flee from the wrath that is to come. The exact message God had laid on my heart. I closed the magazine. I went to the university. I went in the president's office and I said, I am resigning. It was the middle of April. I said, I'm going to give you two weeks notice. April the 1st, I'm leaving. He said, well, would you like a new automobile? I said, no. He said, you want a membership in the country club? I said, no. 
I said, you don't understand. I'm called to preach. And he was a former preacher. He said, well, if you got the call, I know you got the call. That's no reason for me to try to argue with you. Two weeks notice, okay. Where are you going to preach? I said, no place. I, I, I don't have a church. I, I'm just going to step out in faith and I'm just going to preach the coming of the Lord. And he shook his head and he looked down at his desk and then he looked up at me and he said, well, all I can say to you is this. You have selected a very appropriate date to start your ministry. And so on April the 1st, April Fool's Day in 1980, we started the ministry. And a year later, I brought my first group back from Israel on that very day. And my wife handed me a package wrapped up like a birthday present. I said, hey, this is not my birthday. This is not our anniversary. She said, the anniversary of the ministry. I opened it up and she had gone to a calligrapher. And the calligrapher had put our logo at the top and said, to my husband in memory of the first anniversary of our ministry and at the bottom it had that quotation from Paul we are fools for Christ's sake well I learned a lot of things during these years of running from the Lord and I want to close by just sharing two or three of them with you one of them is that uh, I learned that God has not retired that God is alive, God is well, God is sitting on the throne, God still hears prayers, God still answers prayers, and God still performs miracles. That was one of the major things I learned. In Malachi 3.6 it says God does not change. In Hebrews 13.8 it says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Bible is the God of today. The, the Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus of today. And let me tell you something, folks, it's important to believe that. Because if you don't believe that, the Bible is irrelevant. You know why? Because the Bible tells you story after story after story after story of people who get into trouble and who turn in faith to God and reach out to God and God intervenes. And if you don't believe God does that today, the Bible's irrelevant. God is still on the throne. He still hears prayers. He still answers prayers. He still performs miracles. Second thing I learned. God is personal. He's personal. He's concerned about every aspect of your life, every worry that you have right now. He's concerned about every concern, every need. He is concerned about it. One of the things that, of many things, that differentiates Christianity from all the other religions of the world is that we are the only one that has a personal God. There is no personal God in Judaism. The Jews consider God to be the God of a nation, not of an individual. There is no personal God in uh, Islam. Mohammed even said, I don't know whether I'm saved or not. I just, you know, he's arbitrary, he's aloof, he's distant. There is no personal God in, in Hinduism or Buddhism. Only in Christianity is there a personal God. And one of the verses that I discovered while I was in the wilderness seeking for God, and one that has become a cornerstone of my life, is in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. Listen to this carefully. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Cast all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Wow. He's concerned about your illness. He's concerned about uh, your financial problems. He's concerned about everything. That is bringing a lack of peace into your life. Third thing I discovered, God desires to help us. He desires to help us. There's nothing too trivial for Him. He desires to help us. But we have to reach out to Him. One of the chapters that has become so important to me is James chapter 4. Listen to what James writes here. James 4 verse 2. 
you do not have because you do not ask. We get into a problem, the first thing we think about is, well now, uh, who, who can help us with this? Uh, well, maybe he's, he's got a lot of context, and maybe I can use my money, or maybe I can use this influence, or maybe I can use this po- political connection. And the last thing, the last thing that we begin to think about is God, when we, He should be first. First. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. God cares. He desires to help. But let me tell you something, He's a gentleman. He's a gentleman. And if you want to do it your way, He'll let you do it your way. Early in the history of our ministry, two years into it, that old junker that Bernice gave me just finally died. We got the board of trustees together, and I said, I, I, you know, I've got to have, have a vehicle. And they said, right, uh, you go buy one. I said, great. And we went on the next item on the agenda, and one of the board members said, wait a minute, wait a minute. How are you going to get that car? I said, well, I, you know, like you always do, I'll go down and I'll sign a, a, a contract, and we'll start making monthly payments. He said, why do that? He said, God knows your need, and God will supply our needs. He said, we ought to ask God for the money. Okay, so we joined hands around the table and we prayed God would supply. Next week I sent out a little newsletter and the newsletter was just a little one-line thing said we desperately need a van for our, for our ministry. Please pray about it. The next day a lady called me I met one time in Oklahoma City and she said, I saw where you need a van. How much is a van? I said, about 15000 This was back in 1981. I said, 15000 She said, does that include tax, title, and license? I said, I, said, I don't know. She said, I'll make the check out for $17,500 and you'll have it tomorrow. God gave me a choice. I could either turn to him or I could go to the bank and pay, make payments. He's a gentleman. He doesn't force himself on anyone. He expects you to reach out in faith. And when you do, does he ever respond? It's just unbelievable. The other day I was reading through the Gospels and I noticed something interesting and that is the most common question that Jesus asked people, the most common question he asked over and over and over and over, what can I do for you? Blind man on the side of the road. Son of David, have mercy on me. He said, what can I do for you? He knew he was blind. Lepers came. What can I do for you? He knew they were lepers. They had to ask. And when you ask, you'll be astonished at how he responds. Final thing. I learned that God is not interested in anyone meeting him halfway. He has no interest in that. You will not impress him in the least. If you say, well, God, I tell you what I'll do, I'll meet you halfway. He'll teach you a hard lesson if you do that. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 12. And there in verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world. Surrender is what God wants. A complete surrender. And that always reminds me of that remarkable comment in Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. Listen to this. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. He's looking, trying to find hearts that have been truly given over to him that he might do something marvelous through them. I'll end with an illustration. For many years, I was a member of a little country church over in Lucas. And 
its membership dwindled over the years. It finally got down to about 100 people. But they had a Christian school that had over 300 kids in it. And one of the teachers at that school was a young woman who taught music. And one day she wrote a song. And it became the number one song in all of Christendom. The Revelation song. God was looking for someone who had given their heart to him. Bang! And today she's a full-time songwriter in Nashville, Tennessee, writing Christian songs. I've seen that happen over and over and over. God just looks for someone whose heart has been given to him. And it will always be the person that the world least likely expects. I want to conclude this morning with an invitation. We're going to stand in a few minutes and we're going to begin to worship the Lord. And the worship team can come on up. And here's what I want to do. As we give you this opportunity, there will be some people down here at the front. Mike will be here and uh, uh, maybe the pastor if he feels like it. But anyways, there will be some people down here at the front. And you can come to speak to one of them or you can just come and sit down. Either way. And we will minister to you personally and privately personally and privately if you want to just sit we can do that and you can when the service is over we come to you and minister to you but for many many years I came to church bleeding to death inside and I would go home bleeding to death inside because I'd never given an opportunity to be ministered to we want to give you an opportunity to be ministered to if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior God has preserved your life to this moment that you can have the opportunity to accept him as your Lord and Savior Our God is a God of justice. And because He is, He must deal with sin. God must deal with sin. His love motivates Him to deal with sin. How can He be a God of love and and ignore sin? Everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But almost nobody knows John 3.36, which is from a sermon of John the Baptist, where he says... That every person on planet earth, every person here and myself included, are under either the wrath of God or the grace of God. Because God deals with sin in one of two ways, wrath or grace. Every one of you are under either the wrath of God or the grace of God. It is a terrible thing to be under the wrath of God. It is a glorious thing to be living under the grace of God. And all you have to do to move from wrath to grace is to reach out in faith and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Most of you have done that. But you may be here this, this morning bleeding to death inside because of some decision you're trying to make. Or maybe some illness that you're dealing with. Maybe it's a, a member of the family who has rebelled against God. Uh, maybe it's a, a, a business decision. I don't know. I, I just know that in a crowd this size there have to be people who really need the Lord this morning and need someone to pray for them to make the right decision. Or pray for them to be delivered from bondage to drugs or whatever. Or to pray for them to get a financial touch that they can pay their rent or make their house payment or whatever. Or to get a job. Whatever your need is, the answer is Jesus Christ. And what we'll do is pray for you personally and privately. So that you can go home delivered from that worry, that concern, that anxiety. That verse in 1 Peter 5 says, If you will humble yourself, God will exalt you. You can go home, get down by your bed and pray, and God will hear it, and He will move in His own way. But let me tell you something. 
It's important when you do it publicly. You know why? Because you humble yourself. And God exalts you. And you join in prayer with someone else. And the word says, when you join in prayer with somebody else, there's special power in that prayer. I don't know. Maybe it's the release of the faith of two people. I can't explain it. I just know what it says. So we're giving you an opportunity to be ministered to this morning. Just step out, come, let somebody pray with you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will bless this time of ministry. May your Holy Spirit come in great power and move among us. And may you bind the spirits of fear and pride so that your spirit is the only one who prevails here this morning. And may your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's begin to worship the Lord.